You are listening to The Partner Podcast, relevant information to enhance the careers and improve the lives of partner-level attorneys. Produced by The Attorney Search Group, we grow law firms and accelerate attorney careers. Visit us on the web at attorneysearchgroup.com. Our guest on today's podcast is Professor David Iglesias. He is, for many of you, a man who needs no introduction. I personally think David has earned the title of the most interesting lawyer in the world. As a former Navy JAG and retired Navy captain, he is also a former United States attorney and the author of Injustice, Inside the Scandal that Rocked the Bush Administration. David currently is the director of the Wheaton Center for Faith, Politics, and Economics, in addition to being an associate professor of politics and law at Wheaton College. And today on our show, we get to hear David tell his story and talk about how there is value in failure and that it can be leveraged for success. So I've got with me on the podcast, David Iglesias. David, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Great to be here. So you've got an interesting, circuitous story that has had peaks and valleys. And I know with our topic today, we're going to talk about the value of failure, how failure can be leveraged for success. But maybe you can give like a 30-second overview for people that might not be as familiar with you. What are some of the highlights of your professional career and what are you doing today? Yeah. So looking back quickly, 30 plus years, uh, served in the Navy as a JAG officer, got out, was appointed uh, United States Attorney for the District of New Mexico, served as a White House fellow, was fired from my U.S. attorney position, went back in the Navy doing war crimes prosecutions in Guantanamo, and I'm currently serving at the Wheaton Center for Faith, Politics, and Economics at Wheaton College. Wow. Yeah, that's an amazing career history. It's almost like anything that's going to be headline news. It sounds like you've been involved in it your whole career. Well, it's funny because I, I reckon because when you're in the political world, the circles are small, and I recognize a lot of the people who are making news on both sides of the aisle. Yes. So, what we're talking about today, failure, the value of it—that's a provocative statement. I talk to partners all day, as you know, and that's how we first met years ago. And I get the sense that these are people that are risk averse, that have a high fear of failure, because they don't want to be a failure. But you're telling me that there's value in it. How can someone that's practiced law for 30 years say that there's value in failure? Yeah, because failure can lead and many times does lead to bigger and better things. I mean, I'm not saying it's not a painful process. I mean, I look back to when I ran for public office and lost and it was a crushing defeat, but it led directly to my appointment as United States attorney. And then I think back about being fired by President Bush's Justice Department and that was very painful, very scary, but it led directly to me being reactivated with U.S. Navy, in which I prosecuted war crimes, uh, the most meaningful work I've ever done. So, I mean, failure can lead to great things. You can't view failure as a permanent condition. It's a temporary condition. And, you know, risk is involved. Uh, being risk averse is not good. Uh, life is inherently risky. And I would encourage partners to, uh, to think about the long term. I mean, are they committed in staying where they are for the next 20 years? I would ask them to reassess if that's where they are. So of all the things that you've done in your career, all the different types of law that you've practiced from military to high-level prosecution, what did you find the most challenging? 
I would say the most challenging work was being a war crimes prosecutor, because unlike my time as a state and federal prosecutor, in which I had a lot of control over when to file, what to file, there was very little control in the military commissions. I mean, it was a rugby scrum between the Justice Department and the military, between the FBI and other law enforcement and intelligence agencies. The work uh, had to be declassified. So we were dealing with highly classified documents and we had to be able to declassify it. Typically, it happened overseas in a foreign language. I mean, it was every possible thing you could do to complicate a prosecution. Oh, and then I should say there were some torture issues as well, which absolutely is radioactive to any prosecution. How did you manage that? I mean, I'm sure that this must have been something where you're putting in 15-hour days minimum. How were you able to manage yourself during that time? So I made sure and worked out. Uh, the military is good in, in you know, encouraging people to work out. So I, I made a point of running uh, three or four times a week made a point of lifting weights. I made a point of trying to get enough sleep. I mean, I tried to live as much of a balanced life as possible. It was aided in part because my wife and kids were back in Albuquerque and I was in the DC area as well as being at Guantanamo. Uh, that obviously uh, wasn't true for all six years of my activation, but it was true for the first two years. Wow. What, what were some of the more interesting cases that you worked on when you were dealing with the war crimes? Yeah, so I worked a little bit on the USS Cole prosecution. That's the bombing of the USS Cole uh, in October of 2000, which tragically killed uh, a lot of sailors and injured many more. And I, I did a little bit of work on that. That case is still ongoing. I did a tiny, tiny microscopic amount of work on the 9-11 case, which is a monstrous case. I think even in federal court, that, that would have been a very difficult uh, court. That's still ongoing. But I'm, I'm proud of, of a little case that I uh, headed up as a team leader uh, called United States versus Noor Uthman Mohammed. And this was a guy from the Sudan who we had evidence was training foreign fighters, foreign terrorists. Wow. He pled guilty to that. I had a chance to meet him in his cell. I headed up a team of Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, and I think one civilian, if, if memory serves me. And then we got a guilty plea. He served out his time. I think he got 36 months after serving pretrial detention for seven or eight years. Then he went home, and then he's not reoffended. I mean, he's not rejoined any terrorist group. So I, I'm really proud of that relatively small case, because that's ideally how a case should proceed. Wow. So you've had some amazing experiences that most people listening to this just haven't had. And we look at the career path that most of them have followed. They go to college, they go to law school, they hire on as a clerk or as an associate with a high-level firm, and then they're on the path to partnership, hopefully. And they either make it or they don't. Some of them go in-house, but you've done some pretty adventurous things. And I remember when we talked before, and as we talked earlier today, you mentioned that failure is something that can be leveraged. So tell me about that. What do you mean by that specifically, and how does one go about leveraging failure? Well, first, let me quote probably my favorite quotation on failure is, of course, Churchill. Churchill was a genius. He had a lot of tremendously great sayings. And what he said about failure is this, success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. I mean, here's a guy who got fired uh, as the British equivalent of the Secretary of the Navy. His career survived that. Yeah, he had a stuttering problem, which is something I can relate to because I had to overcome uh, a speech impediment myself uh, in my youth. So, you know, you can't view failure as, as a permanent career-ending stop. It's a detour 
You can learn from it. You can reset. You can move forward. And it may not be doing exactly what you're doing before. So if the partners are committed to doing exactly the same thing, they need to be flexible. They need to consider maybe variations of what they're doing or maybe something completely different. I mean, I, I went from doing one type of law to practicing a very different type of law. So you've got to be flexible. You have to be uh, malleable and not brittle. Well, like what you said about having the long-term perspective earlier, I always have talked to some friends of mine before that are going through a tough time. And I said, at this point in time on this page, in this chapter, it's awful. But if we flip through a few more pages, how do we not know it's not going to be even better than it is today? Well, right. Or, or you think of somebody like Thomas Edison had to figure out how to, what filament was he going to use to create the, uh, the light bulb. And he spent, you know, years trying out thousands of different things and he failed thousands of times, but he finally found the right type of filament. And that's all anybody thinks of, uh, which is really unfair because it took a tremendous amount of determination and stick to that's, uh, you know, in, in his case. You're absolutely right. So let me ask you this. Do you think the legal community, the legal business, the industry, do you think that rewards that concept? Or do you think it's just really tough to find people in leadership roles that believe that concept? I think in the legal world, it's it's rare to find somebody who would be a, an Edison, somebody who would, uh, you know, keep plowing through. I think there's a risk-averse culture in general in Washington, D.C. I think that's also true in the legal world. I think, you know, you have to worry about malpractice suits and, and things of that nature. So that that adds a layer of complexity to it. But I think if you uh, look at your life in decades and not just the next, you know, bonus over the next year, you can really try to figure out, is this really what I want to do for the next 30 years of my life, 40 years of my life? But you've got, again, you've got to be flexible. You've got to have some options. You've got to make options if you don't think you have any. And I think one of the problems inherent within the law firm world is that they can't look past the next three quarters. I mean, that's really, that's where their vision ends. And so it's really hard for them to understand what you're talking about and even to embrace it. And I think it's an issue of leadership where if somebody understands, like, so here's an example, I'm meeting with some firms to do some high level strategic development in their firms on that'll really be impacting. And I realize that this is a firm that is self-aware. I met with a firm yesterday and I even said, I said, you all are very self-aware to understand the changes that need to be made. I don't see it to be very common that most people are self-aware of how what they do affects other people. So I think that goes back to what you and I have studied on active duty in the Navy, it's leadership. Right. What recommendations would you give to somebody that's possibly running a legal organization where they might be able to adopt some of the concepts that you're talking about? Well, you know, and and I know firms talk about balance of life, and I understand how hard that is when you're measuring your day by six-minute increments. You know, you, you've got to fill out the timesheets. You've got to do that. You have to stay on top of that. I, I understand that's important for the bottom line of the firm, but I think also you, you need to realize you are more than your six-minute uh, increment. You've got to open up your aperture and, and think about you know, do I want to create a culture in which this person is actually going to have a healthy life, that they're going to actually live to be past the age of 60, that they're not going to have high blood pressure, they're not going to keel over from a heart attack. Uh, I just read where the uh, head of um, Raytheon, maybe the general counsel of Raytheon, just stepped down due to overwork. You know, that that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago, because right. that just went with the territory. But the fact that Raytheon let him do that didn't pillory, pillory him. I think is, is a really good sign. Right. Sure. 
So what advice would you give to a young lawyer that's listening, that's starting out in their practice as it relates to the topic that we're talking about today? I think the most important takeaway, if they remember one thing, is is take risks. Don't always take the safe way out. And, you know, you have to be willing to risk failure. And again, failure can be a good thing. Uh, if you go an entire career and never lose, I'm just wondering how small your horizon is. And so, you know, be sure you don't always take the safe route. Obviously, get advice. I'm not saying be reckless. I'm saying get advice. But sometimes, you know, try to be creative. And and again, don't just think about the next year or the next month or the next quarter. Try to think about where do I want to be in 10, 20, 30 plus years? Right. Yeah, I like that long-term perspective. I definitely do. Some things I've done, one specific idea I've recommended to partners when they're thinking of making a move is I'll say, get a journal and write down all the variables that are important to you. Write down your thoughts, even your emotions about options that you're looking at. And one exercise I gave them was to write down pros and cons of each option and on each variable to assign a numerical value, 10 meaning it's most important, one meaning it's least important, and then add up the different columns. And that at least tries to build some sort of quantitative measure as to what's important, but it really gets them to think, what do I really want to do? And at the end of the day, when people make career decisions, and many times most decisions, it's based on emotion rather than intellect. Oh, that is so true. In fact, uh, my wife is reading Dale Carnegie's classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And that's, that's one of the first takeaways from me rereading that book was people don't just base things on logic. A lot of times it's emotional. And thank you for bringing up journals. I've started journaling when I was 18 years old as a college student here at Wheaton. I still journal. I think to be able to reflect is becoming a lost art form, but I think it's important for you to look inside and know thyself. Uh, like the Greek philosopher, uh, I think Thales uh, said that. It, it's so important to not just become your occupation, not just become your title. Uh, I think you can avoid a lot of problems if if you really look inwards as well. Yeah, I totally agree with that. One of my favorite leaders in the legal world, his name is Dana Fricks. He retired from law. He was a former managing partner of Chad Bourne and Park's DC office. And I got to be very close to him as I was doing some work with him. And I told him, I said, you're probably one of the better leaders in the legal world that I've met. And he said, why is that? And he said, because you're self-aware. And I think that journaling, it helps us to accomplish the things that you mentioned, that we're aware of the things going on around us. And it helps us to have one more way to bring all those ideas to the surface and deal with those. It's so funny because being a good recruiter in my world, you have to be part gladiator, part Olympic athlete, and part marriage counselor, you know, many, many times. <laughs> because, because that of the sounds depth, hard. Yeah, because of the depth of, of things that we talk about as a partner goes through a transition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely true. But no, I'm a huge fan of journaling. I tell my students here at Wheaton, uh, if you don't journal, start. It's a good life skill. And you'll be glad when you're older, when you look back and and just see what you were thinking, what you were doing as a 20-year-old, for example. That's great. So tell me more about what you're doing currently. What are some of the classes that you're teaching? What are some of the other things you're getting involved in right now over at Wheaton? Yeah. So I'm teaching uh, criminal procedure, which uh, the students really like a lot. Uh, I'm teaching civil rights, police action. That's basically Section 1983 litigation or police misconduct cases. Uh, We look at a lot of different videos. We look at the seminal court rulings on that. 
Uh, I teach national security, which is a fun class. I bring in a lot of my friends from the uh, intelligence community, uh, both active and retired and former. And then I also run the Center for Faith, Politics, and Economics. We we are a, a small think tank here at Wheaton. We uh, look at political economy issues from a, a pro-free market, uh, limited government and our, uh, perspective. So we've done things on, for example, immigration. We've done things on uh, income inequality. And I'm bringing in a couple of appellate judges next uh, spring to talk about the rule of law and things that appellate judges wishes the public knew about what they did. Wow. So looking back on your career, David, let's say you're 22 years old and you're graduating from college and you've got choices, you've got options. Would you pick the same path? Yeah, because I was self-aware. I I just briefed some kids recently and I I showed them a picture of uh, the Santa Fe Mountains in New Mexico at about the 11,000 foot level during the fall. And there's a bunch of aspens changing colors. And I say, this is where I used to go as a 17-year-old, and I would look out and say, what, what is coming? What do I want to do? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And for me, my strengths were the ability to read, write well, and communicate well. And you can do any number of things with that, but for me, I was attracted to the law because my sister happened to be dating a law student. So I don't think I would have changed my career. I, I've really enjoyed practicing law. And... Uh, you know, I've had a lot of different types of law. My career has taken detours that I hadn't expected. But fortunately, uh, I'm blessed with a flexible, you know, mindset. And my wife is as flexible as I am. Right. That's great. So with your perspective, you've been on the sharp pointy end of the spear in terms of execution, in terms of getting things done that are very important to our nation. You've also been on the receiving end of when things don't always go well. What's your take? What are the things that you're talking about with your students today as relates to recent developments in the Department of Justice and other over other overarching trends that you're seeing in the political landscape? Yeah, so I just tell them, look, the, these words uh, matter. The Constitution matters. When we talk about rule of law, we actually mean that in this country. We, we have a long and proud history of nobody is above the law. And, you know, you have to cling to that because if you don't, if you start making exceptions if there are no checks and balances, then our country's in trouble. I personally don't think that we are in the worst shape ever. When I hear that, I cringe because I'm old enough to remember the Vietnam War. I'm old enough to remember uh, massive war protests all over the country. Uh, I remember the cities burning after MLK was shot. Uh, I remember the Pentagon being surrounded by anti-war protesters. I remember Kent State. So things were much worse then. Having said that, I think we need to work on civility. And uh, even though I, I tend to be conservative on a lot of issues, I have a lot of friends who are liberal uh, and we're able to talk because, you know, God gave us two ears. I, I try to listen more than I talk. That's great. That's great. So, so do you miss the active practice of law at all, David? You know, I occasionally miss trying cases, uh, opening statements and closing and cross-examination. That's a lot of fun. But I tell you, I don't miss all the work it took to get there. I don't miss doing the depositions and sending out the interrogatories. And, you know, I, I did a fair amount of Section 1983 defense work for the city of Albuquerque. And I started that right after the Rodney King video went viral. So I was in court all the time. So there's a lot of the aspects of practicing law that I don't miss, but I mean, sure, I occasionally miss some things about it. Sure. Well, you've had a you've had a very rich and rewarding career. Well, thank you. I, I've enjoyed it. When students come talk to me, 
I'll tell them, yes, don't give in to the naysayers. Uh, so, you know, there are lots right. of things you can do with a law degree. You don't have to practice one type of law. That's right. Absolutely right. So tell me about the book. If people wanted to reach out to you, how can they find you? Tell me about the book that you wrote. How could they find that? Yeah, so it's very easy. They can go on Amazon. They can type in Injustice, uh, one word, David Iglesias, and they can get a copy for a great price, I'm sure. And uh, yeah, it's just a book about my experience uh, in, in the uh, Crucible uh, in 2007 after I was fired with six other United States attorneys. I think that message is timely because uh, that administration had to pay a high price for trying to politicize the prosecution process. Right. But you've definitely had a lot of interesting experiences that people can learn from, as obviously your students are. So I'm sure they definitely appreciate your perspective as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things that my daughters have told me, I have four daughters all in their 20s. They said, Dad, you've got a lot of great stories. Tell your students your stories. They'll remember those. They're not going to remember the theory, but they'll remember the true stories. You know, isn't that the truth? They'll remember the stories. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Well, David, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. And I'm going to get a copy of your book this afternoon. I hope everybody else listening to this podcast gets that. And I'm sure we'll cross paths at some point again in the future, David. Scott, thank you for reaching out. And I wish you the very best as well. Thanks for joining me. And if you have ideas or recommendations for this podcast, please email me at scott at attorneysearchgroup.com. For more information about the Attorney Search Group and the services I offer as a sports agent for partners who want to find a better platform, visit me on the web at attorneysearchgroup.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.